This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow and today I get to welcome back Hunt Demarest to the podcast. He is, probably owns and nobody knows it, Parr Mellison Associates, an accounting firm that works primarily, if not exclusively, with auto repair shops. He also has his own podcast, which I do highly recommend, and not just because he's here, I've recommended it before, called Business by the Numbers, and it is well, well, well worth a listen when you have time. Thank you for joining me today, Hunt. I appreciate it. While I'm thanking you, I'm going to thank our sponsor, Napa Auto Care. How does Napa support your auto care center through national marketing? Napa will build upon the already successful Know How for All campaign and promote auto care offerings and services through our Do It For Me customer with support through sales driver promotions, optimized targeted media in local markets and improving channels, give your repair facility an online presence on Napa Online, generating millions of views per month. If you're interested in partnering with Napa Auto Care and capitalizing on the Napa Know How for All national marketing campaign, contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. So Hunt, I'm glad you could join me. Thanks for having me. I think I'm kind of on a uh, rampage is probably a little dramatic, but at least I really want to start talking a lot about statistics and probably under the umbrella of uh, economics, because I feel fairly strongly that maybe not just like the mathematics itself, A plus B divided by two or whatever. I'm not so much that as much as some of the principles involved. I feel like Sometimes technicians don't want to go to training to learn how something works or how it's supposed to work or some techniques on how to diagnose or even repair, how to take it apart and put it back together. I don't know if they don't see a good return on investment and their investment may maybe is time. I see a lot of that from shop owners too, like maybe probably just small business owners in general, but we get to pick on shop owners here that maybe just to start us out so it helps qualify everything and Maybe before I even say that is not only are you an accountant, but you do have a background in economics that there's one of them that jumps to mind and it's called reversion to the mean. I've seen some places they'll call it return to mean, but I think technically it's called reversion to the mean. If you get really bored, there's a pretty good video kind of talking about it with, I think it's called Veritasium, the YouTube channel Veritasium. Uh, V-E-R-I-T-A-S-I-U-M. And he's got a lot of good content for physics and mathematics and stuff like that. But he does talk about this. And when I see stuff about it, read about it, it really makes me think of multiple situations in a repair shop. The first is marketing. So I don't know if Kim has this on her podcast at all, if they talk about this, but marketing comes to mind. And then also just shop performance or individual performance. Or I think just shops in general. I mean, shops in general are prime example reversion to the mean. Like you said before, we work with 99% auto repair shops. But, you know, over the years I've worked with, you know, businesses from piping companies to professional services to medical equipment supplies. And when you look at it, all businesses are essentially really similar, right? They all have their little intricacies, but there's a lot of commonality to it. And one of the things that you know, like you and I were talking before is I'm naturally curious, right? Which is one of the reasons why I think I was drawn to economics is it's weird, right? It's really 
kind of massive ideas and you wonder how things work, right? You just talk about something as simple as the stock market, right? Like, hey, we see stock prices going up. What does that even mean? And how does that relate to someone's net wealth? And, and what's the difference between wealth and cash flow and all kinds of stuff like that? But the reason why I say reversion to the mean is really something that's huge for shop owners, technicians, everyone, is there's a lot of businesses out there that are super easy to forecast. Hey, they got a reoccurring... I mean, look at my business, right? Most of my clients pay me on a monthly basis. I know within reason pretty well what the year is going to look like. There's obviously going to be spikes for projects and taxes, but it's a very, very easy business with a pretty steady cash flow. Shops are generally the exact opposite, right? And that was one of the most surprising things that I noticed when I start working with shops is you could have the best month of your career, right? As far as sales or gross profit or anything. And then the next month, what happens? Where is everyone? No one's there. And you're exactly right because it goes right back to what you're talking about of marketing. Hey, if the cars aren't there, if the phone's not ringing, what happens? I mean, how many guys, how many times have you had a week where you booked up your shop and you're like, oh my God, the phone just won't you stop ringing. And all of a sudden it's like a faucet turned off. You know, and I talk to a lot of clients about it of, hey, here's what our target sales are, right? Here's what we're shooting for. Here's what your goals are. If you want to be a $1.2 million shop, and I do that because I can do the easy mental math, we're doing $100,000 of sales a month. You cannot shoot to do $100,000 of sales a month. You'll never end up at 1.2, probably a million, because the average shop, if you look at it, goes 80, 120, 90, 105. 110, 87. And it's natural, especially for shops that have longer term projects where stuff closes out. There's always going to be variability. And this is small shops. This is big shops. This is Euro shops. We see them all. We work with them all across the country. And this is the hardest thing for shop owners. And I would have to imagine, especially a lot of technicians, if you know, you're paid commission or flat rate, that's also a really stressful part of your job. And is that something where technicians are trying to look for that shop that maybe they don't want that shop that can blow it out of the water? Because like you said, a reversion to the mean, the swings are tricky and it could be affecting your take home. Or do you want that shop that is, you know, the tortoise of the hair, right? Do you want that one slow and steady, but like clockwork, you know what it's going to look like. And yeah, I mean, it's a unique thing for the industry. And it's funny because any shop owner says they're not superstitious is lying to you because I've heard the reasoning behind, oh, you know why we had a slow month? That northern wind, when that comes, people don't go out. I mean, I, just some of the stuff of why of why you're slow, there always has to be a reason. I told people, like, sometimes there is no reason. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, because it's going to happen. It has to happen. Because for the most part, nothing has changed or evolved to affect that change, to create that change, and then maintain it. You know, they're almost like statistical anomalies. Maybe not quite so drastic as an anom- a true anomaly, but they kind of act somewhat like that. And then the way we react to that that's the key word I think is react. Mm -hmm. Like you said, the faucet shuts off. Oh my God, what's going on? Okay. I got to get some stuff up on Facebook. I got to start doing Instagram more. I got to get, pick out an ad on the radio or television or start doing something at the movie theater and get the word out. People forgot about us. I got to call up the post office and we got to do something with, or maybe not the post office itself, but maybe a company to send out mailers. And then the next month things go up. And then it's like, oh, okay, the advertising worked. The thing is, it probably would have went up anyways. Or the same thing. A lot of times they, they say, all right, well, I don't need to do this anymore. All right, we're good. So we're done. It worked. Um, it's over. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. It worked. Yep. And then how many times are you going to do that? Oh my God, it's down again. All right, start picking up the phone. It's like, hey, we should never stop picking up the phone and doing stuff like this. Yeah, I see that all the time. Uh, or another aspect of it is 
I don't know if punishment's the right word, but at least taking people to task. So negative reinforcement versus positive reinforcement and that a tech, an employee produces less than normal, whatever that means. And so you pull them in the office and you either give them a pep talk, him or her, a pep talk or chew them out, light them up. You know, it seems like you're on your phone more than normal. What's going on? Are you bringing problems from home to work? That's not going to hack it. I would say lately with the skilled individual lack, the lack of the deficit, things probably aren't quite as negative as they used to be because the chances of them getting mad and leaving and you unable to replace them is really high. But the idea that this um, taking them in, giving them a pep talk had a net positive effect because, oh boy, the next week their numbers went up. However, if you did nothing, the numbers probably were going to go up anyways. Well, how many of those two is like a false causation as well, right? Of exactly. You're not turning hours because you're not working. And the differentiation between efficiency and productivity are often looked as a combined unit, when it's really not. You know, and so many of these, and it was pretty cool. I forget where I saw this. And one of the groups was talking about, you know, some of these exact same ideas from a technician side. And I never really hear it from a technician side, always from the shop owner side. And the biggest thing that talking about is, like you said, setting goals. Hey, Jimmy just was taking too many smoke breaks and I need to talk to him. Right. And then if you talk to Jimmy, he's like, man, I had so much work that I could do. These guys keep on ordering the wrong parts. They claim that it was here. I pull this in, I get taken apart. It's not, I only have one rack here. What am I supposed to do? So yeah, of course I was on my phone because I had no other alternative. Or the same flip side is, hey, the reason I only turned 32 hours, I turned 40, but you didn't want to sell this bill with all the hours on it. So you discounted this so you could look like a hero. But instead of giving discount and lowering the rates, you took the hours away. So that six hour job, that took me six hours, we got paid on three of them. You don't care because it doesn't affect your pay, but I got three less hours. So to look at it and say, all right, I have a productivity problem and it's just a classical that technician doesn't want to work is I would probably say, and you might argue with this, but I would say it's probably the minority of the issues, right? Where you truly just say, hey, we have done everything in our power as an owner, as a shop foreman, as a service advisor, and it's only this person not wanting to work. I mean, naturally, I know personally, like, hey, if I'm at a job, I want to be busy. I mean, there's nothing worse than having nothing to do. That day will go so slow. But that's oversimplification of, hey, if the hours are low, it just must be Matt coasting and not wanting to do anything. It's just always kind of funny. That's probably true. But <laughs> you don't want that specific. Yeah, that's probably really true. But I think I'm biased. I'm very, very biased when it comes to this type of topic because I feel like I have bought in pretty hard to the W. Edwards Deming type of philosophy of management and production, if you will. You know, his stuff usually gets related to kind of factory uh, assembly line type things, but it really works in our world quite well because we're just producing repaired cars. So I buy into what he says an awful lot because he really looks to management and leadership hard. And what the stuff you were saying that, you know, just now about management, I think that speaks to me really hard just because it just resonates because I think it's a good indicator of both confirmation bias and egocentric bias. And everybody does it. Like everybody in the company probably does it. You don't have anyone that's probably really, really good at stepping out uh, of their bodies and looking in. But for your part to recognize that it's easy for you to see what your contributions are. So as an owner, you know, I'm providing, you know, all this, the tools, the equipment, 
the means for them to get the cars in here, fix them properly, phone, internet, whatever shop management system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't want to go any further. And then if production is low, they can say, well, look at, you know, I'm doing, I'm pulling my weight and let me look at some of these numbers and confirmation bias kicks in because they see a number and that's enough to justify in their mind that they're not the problem. It's got to be somebody else, in this case, the technician. Yeah, but don't you think that this also goes back? Obviously, no one likes to be self-reflective, right? No one likes to say, hey, there's an issue. It's probably me, right? That's never anyone's first choice. That's the last one. And usually they'll argue this at the end of the day. But don't you think that also this is, again, you know, an analogy of, hey, you might be able to get someone to overproduce, but at some point, it's going to come back to what they truly should be. And you probably work with them and, you know, hear about guys. And I have clients that have guys like clockwork, just crank out 70 hours a week. Like they're just cut from a different cloth. They just get it and they can just go. But none of those guys are in a position where they have a shop with bad equipment, only one rack, not the proper tools. I don't care how smart you are, how good. If you don't have help from the outside to create that environment for you and, you know, give you the tools that you need, it'll never happen. But I also think that a lot of times people set up these businesses where they're like, hey, I just need to get these guys all at 50 hours. If you have guys that are cranking out 50 hours and they're not made to do that, they might be able to do this in the short term, but at some point it's going to go back. Maybe they get injured and it goes to zero. Maybe they just say, you know what? This is miserable. I don't want to do this. This is not enjoyable. I'm making mistakes. I'm going to completely leave this trade because this industry, I think, you know, we obviously have a technician problem. And I know we are going to talk about that because you wanted to talk about the wages, which I think is a huge, you know, supply and demand issue. But how much of this stuff is, hey, the reason we have a technician shortage is because we're scaring them out of the industry, right? Not even scaring them out of the shop of just, nah, I'm done. I'm going to go do something else. Trying to think what I was going to interject in there. Kind of going back to the shop owner and they don't want to recognize themselves as the problem. I think reasonably they could remove like themselves from the equation a little bit, if anything, psychologically and go the system. And the system is not in place. The system is not as stable as it should be to get this consistency, this consistent whatever that goal may be, if it's 35 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 70 hours a week, whatever that may be. Or like you're saying, even tailored a little bit individually where you've got somebody that by the nature of the work they're doing and you know, experience, everything, they do 70 just week in, week out, week in, week, week out. And it's all about working on the system to maintain that and help the others rise as high as they can reasonably go. And I know I throw in reasonably and that's kind of a a vague term or a term of vagueness, uh, maybe even on purpose, but they do have control over the system. So they don't necessarily have to like blame themselves or drop in the ball, but they have to look at the systems in place. And how can we constantly improve this system? What can we do to improve the system? How can I get everyone involved to help me further streamline this process and this process? And whatever that may be, it could be something as little as relocating certain toolboxes or where the parts are maybe the oil filters, just anything and anything and everything that you can think of that minimizes steps. One gets everyone working on the same page, right? You know, this is not, hey, the technician's fixing it, right? There's so many. I mean, I guess if you have a really small shop, that is the case. 
which obviously then kills efficiency there because you're like, hey, I'm the one signing the paperwork from the driver. I'm the one making sure that he's picking this stuff up. But yeah, it's an entire process. And so to kind of compare it to my business, that part kind of annoys me, right? Is think about if I told you, Matt, you know what? All of my people that work for me, they have to buy their own computers. Like you guys would say, Hunt, you're the like world's cheapest boss, but we don't think twice when <laughs> <laughs> these guys have $40,000 worth of tools and they think it's unreasonable if you know the shop supplies it, but we won't go down that road. But the really cool example analogy that I was given one time was this home builder. You know, average time to build a house was, I think, 160 days. Doesn't matter for this story, but we'll call it 160. And so, you know, he had a meeting on productivity and efficiency and process and procedures to say, hey, how could we streamline this as much as possible? And none of this is going to be, guys, can you work harder? Because there was no kind of disillusion that it was just people deliberately going slow. So he sat them all down and said, guys, we're going to build this house in 10 days. Okay. And everyone says it's impossible. We cannot do it. And so he goes, all right, well, just stick with me for a little bit. If we were to build this house in 10 days, what would it look like? What would we have to order? What would we have to have ready to go? What would the schedule look like? Who would have to be doing what and stuff like that? And long story short, what they ended up coming down with is a group kind of conversation. Hey, the framers say, you know what? This is what really grinds our gears. When we do this, the girders aren't set correctly. We have to come out. Then the crane has to come out. Then we come back. This is so inefficient. The crane was here the first day. We could get this all done. Right down to the plumbers, the flooring guys, the finishing guys, all of this stuff. And so long story short, what they ended up doing is, no, they didn't build a house in 10 days, but they reduced their average time of building a house from 160 days down to about 70. Now, this is probably also a really good example of shops because there is quality to be considered here. And you see, and we'll use homes for an example, hey, a house that was built in 80 days, and you see these neighborhoods popping up. I'm not sure if it's around you, Matt, but a lot around here where you're driving and then all of a sudden you drive by you're like, when did they put all those up? Like, where did those come from? You know, and so definitely if you have the big question in your head of, hey, if you're building it that quick, are you really worried about quality or are you worried about speed? And I think that that's probably the big argument for a shop too, right? And that has to be really hard for a technician because I know no matter what I'm doing, I take a lot of pride in my work. Hey, I don't want to give someone the wrong answer. Maybe it's my own ego of I don't like being wrong and, you know, kind of cutting corners. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. But how many guys do you think are in the place where they say, hey, you know what? If you want me to go any faster, it's going to be sacrificing quality. This is as fast as I can go to the level of quality that I want. So you have two choices. Do you want it faster or do you want it done right? Because you can't have both. It's just probabilistic where it has to. The faster people work uh, with that kind of uh, pressure to get whatever out the door, whether it's hours or cars or whatever. It's like you have eight cars today, you got to get them out. If that type of pressure is there, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be any pressure because we, we need a little bit, we need some motivation, but depending on how hard we're standing on that, you're increasing the probability of quality going down. And is it going to go down enough to where you're going to have regular comebacks? Maybe not, but you will. I think comebacks are also throwing parts at it, right? Like, hey, I could go down through and I could look at this, but hey, 98% of the time this part's going to work, I'm going to throw it on there. And 98% of the time I'm right, I'm done, it's out the door. That 2%, yeah, it's going to end up paying for a part that they don't really need. Oh, that's a service advisor to sell the murder-suicide story to the customer on it. But, you know, and it's kind of stuff like that. Of Like, hey, not only is it sacrificing quality for you as far as what kind of work, the other day it could also be on the customer side of, hey, we just charge them $700 for something that was really just this stupid $10 relay. But we didn't know that after we put a new voltage regulator, alternator, and battery on this that we were like, oh, 
yeah, it was just that. Never seen that before. Never would have thought that was my first try, but. Are you a repair shop owner? Do you find yourself struggling with any of the following? Uncertainty about the future and competition. Are you spending too much time managing chaos and struggling with new employees? Do you lack time to invest in learning best practices? Or there's no time to spend on effective marketing? How do your finances look? Are you reactive rather than proactive? Do you know where you should be? When to grow? When to shrink? If any of those situations describe where you are today, you are finally in the right place. Repair Shop of Tomorrow is Napa Auto Care's newest endorsed partner. They are helping shops all over the nation run more profitable automotive repair shops by utilizing proven business best practice marketing and coaching to leverage Napa programs to drive quality, car count, sales, and profits. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percentage, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Team up with coaches to create systems, operations, and procedures using a business flowchart to help you reach your goals. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will help measure and manage the results to help each business succeed. Best of all, it's not do-it-yourself. It's all done for you. Their goal is to help dealers do what they do best, fix cars and build relationships at the counter and in the community. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will take the other minutia off your plate. The Repair Shop of Tomorrow offers a tier-based program to not only generate more business today, but to transform your shop into a top-level shop of tomorrow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow can teach you how to make your shop profitable. They can teach you how to recruit and how to make more labor dollars for your shop. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440-545-1230 for a free 20-minute no-obligation consultation or contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. Looking over the numbers, looking over your KPIs and not taking further steps, which is something you and I were discussing in a um, podcast with Carm for Remarkable Results Radio. Uh, It's episode... 290 Town Hall Academy. We're talking about numbers don't lie, but they also don't tell the truth. And just when we're talking about managers or owners looking at numbers and their KPIs and not necessarily putting much effort into finding out why. Why did that number do that? Why did that number do that? Why did it do this? And and really putting in some effort and extra steps, you fall victim to something called Simpson's paradox, which we brought up. Uh, in that podcast. And it's simply, essentially, you can have two completely equal, if you will, equations with results that are 180 degrees different, completely different, opposite, and both be 100% correct. What they miss is context. One example is, and probably not as extreme as what I just said there, you know, because that the one I said was kind of almost like glass half full, glass half empty, matter of perspective, matter of... um Context. Another really good example of the Simpsons paradox is if you ever see an ad where it says nine out of 10 dentists recommend Colgate. What they don't tell you is to give context to all this to that number, because they're not lying. Nine out of 10 dentists recommend Colgate, but they were given a survey and the survey had a dozen different types of toothpastes. And please check mark the toothpaste that you would recommend. And some of them recommend all of them. And some of them go through and say, I wouldn't recommend Aquafresh to anybody. That's for kids. Bubblegum flavored toothpaste. Are you kidding me? You know, baking soda. That's so 
depression era, whatever. But nine out of 10 checkmarked Colgate. So they're saying nine out of 10 dentists recommend Colgate. They're not really lying, but they're not telling the truth either. They're not giving you any context. And that's what I worry about sometimes looking at the numbers. And we have numbers available to us rather quickly through our shop management systems, through QuickBooks, calling you up. But there's value, a lot of value in tracking down the hows and the whys and the why force. And I guess that was part of you know my thinking with talking about statistics here and, and concepts, statistical concepts. Well, it's also confirmation bias too, right? It's 100% so bad. You could read that no matter how you want it and you could argue it to the end of time and both chances have equal probability of being right. You know, and a big one that I talk about is, you know, with a lot of shop owners, hey, we have information at our fingertips all the time. Most of the day-to-day stuff is coming off the shop management software. You know, QuickBooks is the accounting on the back end that is really what we took in and what we paid out. In the perfect world, they match. And we talk about parts a lot, right? Because labor is never going to be that close. Shop management software is always a guesstimate on it. Um, QuickBooks is the actual payroll. But parts really, especially in this day and age with electronic ordering and stuff like that, it really should be close. And what we see a lot of times is people are realizing a lot lower than they think. Hey, you have 50% gross profit margin in TechMetric. You have 30% in QuickBooks. Now, there is a number of very real situations, and I've seen all of these, that could happen. You could have people stealing parts. You could have a race car. You could have misclassification. You could have an inventory issue, right? There's any number of things. And, you know, just like we were saying, you could go back and look at it and be like, oh, I have a race car. You know, that's probably it. Yeah, that could be it, but does it make sense? And that's where the numbers come in on it because all of those are reasons, but generally most of those are not enough to explain it. Oh, you have a race car? Okay, well, in order to explain this difference, you would have had to spend about $200,000 on your race car. Now, your wife is on the phone with this call, so I know that you're never going to give me the straight answer, but even if she wasn't, that's just too much money, right? It doesn't make sense. So a lot of it is too of just talking about that of, hey, I just think that they're you know working slow. I just think that it's this. Does it actually make sense for how much we're talking about here, right? Do you think that that technician only doing 20 hours is only doing 50% productivity just because he's lazy, right? Just because he's smoking? That's 20 hours, right? Do you really think that he's doing that for 20 hours? But, you know, this goes into anything, right? You could go into a statistical analysis of anything that's going on in the world and you'll have two sides look at the same data set and give very different answers or very different opinions on it. Look at our inflation numbers that came out. January came out at 6.4%. And everyone says, we're at 6.4%. This is craziness. We cannot get out of this, right? 6.4% means that prices are still increasing on an average of 6.4%. But then on the flip side of it, hey, it went down from 6.8% to 6.4%. We had a decrease in average increase of inflation of 0.4%. Now, I don't think that both of those are the same argument. Was One of them is a right one, one is a wrong one. But again, whatever your kind of preconceived notion and a lot of what you're trying to put out there, you can use numbers to your side, especially if you're only using one number. Any business, no matter how good or bad it is, I could cherry pick one statistic and be like, hey, you know what? They do this really well. They have five times the cash than they do in debt. Now, that business could also have $5 in a bank and only owe a dollar to their sales tax, right? And so it's you have to be super careful when you start getting too into the numbers. I always tell this, numbers don't lie, but they have to tell a story, right? Or they do tell a story. Now, my job is to kind of go down through is, and the nice part about it is I don't have any bias when I'm looking at my shops. A lot of these shops I've never seen in my life. I don't know if it's nice. I don't know if it's clean. 
I don't know if it's huge. I do know if it's big because of the sales and stuff like that. But I can look at it from number side of it and say this, hey, to me, it looks like you probably have a productivity issue because you're selling a bunch, you're paying a bunch. And this is what I would estimate you to have like three technicians. And you just told me you had seven, right? I'd even do the math on the efficiency numbers, but is that the case? Yeah. Now, do I know down to the penny of what it is? No, but it's giving me ideas, right? It's giving me possibilities on that. Now, it could be any number of things, right? If you could look at that same thing and be like, yeah, I do have seven technicians. I forgot to tell you that four of them were on vacation last month. One of those is, hey, we have a major productivity. Uh, Other one is, hey, maybe you guys shouldn't give out four weeks vacation to all of them. It's hunting season, man. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, but both of them have completely different solutions here, right? And so that's such a, I don't know, I guess it's good and bad, right? Hire vegetarians. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's going to get offended by that comment. I've tried to offend people <laughs> a few weeks ago with attributing a lot of their success to luck and it didn't happen. So I think I can get away with almost anything. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, you know, when you start talking about some of this stuff and you start using numbers, then people get mad. It's like, how can you be mad? I'm not telling you anything. I'm not telling you opinion. These are strictly numbers of what's coming off of a piece of paper. Now, as long as the stuff is calculated correctly, and you don't get too far away from the numbers, right? You don't try to draw too rash conclusions from it. It's like, hey, you might not like to hear that or you might not like how I said it, but it's concrete, right? It's real. Can't argue the numbers side. You can argue the analysis. You can't argue the numbers. Yeah, it's kind of the ego thing gets wrapped up into it. Like I'm telling you these numbers, that's what they are. And you might not even be judging. You're just, this is what it is. And we have to know where we're at to know how to get to where we need to go. And but I'm telling you these numbers and you're not liking it because maybe you feel like you should have known or maybe you just you're taking it so personal like you should have you're failing and you don't like being told that you're failing. You might think it yourself, but it's different hearing it from somebody, even if you're paying them to tell you it. I think that gets involved heavily. And I think it's easy to say, right, I'm I'm sitting behind a microphone and a computer, almost keyboard warrior level. It's really, really easy to tell people to learn how to take criticism. Yeah, and I think that naturally, you know, there's two different aspects of it. I don't think that anyone, and I'll be sexist here, especially men, right? Well, I guess women don't like taking criticism very well. But naturally for a guy, hey, the first response is going to be defensive, right? I feel like I'm being attacked. Now, most people then at some point can be like, you know what? I didn't like to hear it, but it wasn't wrong, right? And can kind of admit and say, hey, I got to work on this. But also a lot of this stuff is, you know, does what you're looking at have, you know, actually another variable in it that, again, you're drawing the wrong conclusion from. And I'm really hesitant to even do this statistic because of kind of the controversy behind it. But let's talk about COVID, right? You want to talk about statistics. You want to talk about numbers. You want to talk about charts. I mean, this was someone that likes numbers dream of the stuff that was coming out here. And the big statistic that always came up, and this was reported a lot in Maryland and and all over the country, is the number of positive test cases. And it grinded my gears every single time I heard that statistic because I said, talk about an absolutely worthless statistic. And I'm not talking about that COVID was created by, you know, Bill Gates to track us, anything like that. But some of these things that were put out there of something that you could actually use to make decisions off of was asinine, right? It's the number of positive cases. That is such a terrible statistic to use in a vacuum, because if you test a ton, you're going to have a lot more positive cases than someone that to test zero, 
right? And so what you're not getting any guidance on that. And even if you think, if you're saying, no, I'm looking at the same county that has the same availability to test, hey, people have their free will, right? Unless you're testing the same sample every single week for the same study, it's a worthless study. It's a worthless number to talk about. And there's so much of this stuff of like, hey, this person is really good at basketball, right? So anyone that grows up and is on this street is really good at basketball. No one mentioned that the average height of people on that street was about six foot six, right? Hey, I think actually the height was a much bigger factor into their success than them growing up on Elmore Drive. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the episode I did on luck for professional hockey players. If you were born kind of in the early months of the year, the chances of you having great success go up significantly. Well, not a guarantee by any means, but they go up significantly. And stuff like that can't be ignored. And I think that follows kind of what you're saying here with um, the uh, basketball players, right? There's probably more to the story. Did you read Malcolm Gladwell's book? Is that where you got that from? I found the study. I heard a reference to it. I'll have to think about where I got it. And so that's a really cool one. So if you haven't read that and anyone listening, if you have made it this far in the episode, I think you'll probably like it. It's called Outliers. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's really good because, again, it's, you know, statistics and stuff like this. And you hit it dead on, right? Is why is there the weirdest concentration of people that are professional hockey players that are born in the first three months of the year? Like statistical probability of being a hockey player that was born on Christmas is almost none, right? It just doesn't exist. But if you look at it, it's like, no, it's not the lunar calendar. It's nothing like that. There's a very logical explanation to this. These people are going to be older than their counterparts at a very, very important age, which is, I don't know, someone's going to correct me and you might know this, but in hockey, I think it's about age eight or nine where they kind of split. The good players at that point now go and start playing for these travel teams and stuff like that. If you miss that split, you're done because those older kids are already more developed, are already more mature, already understand the game more. So of course they're going to be better. Now they're playing with better people, better coaches. Of course, they're going to keep on getting better. The ones that are born in August that maybe didn't develop that well, of course, some of those are going to make it through but you have a lot harder path to it. And again, it's like, hey, was that person born in January? Was that the reason to their success? In a nutshell, yeah, the end statistic is going to say that, but it really has nothing to do with that actual month. It all has to do with the selection process of how these people are sorted. Because if you looked at that and you said, give all of them the same opportunities, the same level of attention, if these people are eight months different when they're you know, one years old, when they're 23 years old, they're still going to be eight months apart, but it's not going to be distinguishable whatsoever, right? And this, again, using as the causation, which I guess is still a causation to some degree, but there's outside forces that are compounding these effects. I'm almost positive I got it from an episode of Veritasium that I think he talked about luck. So I went and looked up the study natively. I don't think I've read that book. I think the last one I read of... Malcolm's was blank. So I might have to look into that one. Yeah, he has a couple of really cool ones in there. And, you know, I'll put this one back to like training too, right? We talked about tech training before and, you know, the whole idea of how many hours does it take to master your craft? And he even goes into that book, a story about the Beatles. Why did the Beatles turn out to be the greatest, most successful rock band of their generation? I'm not a big Beatles fan, but, you know, a lot of people still say, you know, best band ever to do this. And they go into it and they're like, the success wasn't random. Actually, it all comes from, you know, when they were very early in the career, they got a gig to go play in Berlin, I think. And back in those days in Berlin, you played and it wasn't, hey, you played every Saturday. 
you played every single night. You played three or four sets. So by the time these guys came back to Manchester and were playing alongside guys that were playing gigs and pubs and garages and stuff like that, they weren't polished. They didn't know how to work a crowd. They didn't know how to build a set list. They had not perfected it. These guys had spent two years and had done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. And of course, they blew these guys out of the water, right? They just understood this so much more than anyone else. And right, you can take a segue to that for anyone, you know, in any sort of industry. Oh, look at how easy he has it. Man, he makes it look so easy. It's like, no, he makes it look really easy now because you didn't see him perfecting this, making mistakes, growing, learning, which is all part of the process. And I think a lot of times going back to shops, I think it's a little bit weird to see sometimes because the classical shop owner started as a technician. They were in those people's shoes at one point. I feel like at some point that memory gets wiped out. You hear about old people, oh, when I was younger, I, you know, had to walk to school in the snow uphill both ways because you always think it was harder than, you know, the next generation that has it. And I feel like a lot of times that's the same thing with, you know, shop owners of, yeah, you guys just aren't doing this or aren't doing that. It's like you had these same frustrations when you're a technician, you know, like how did you forget this that quickly of how there's so many different things that are going on here? But I think like you're talking about, like as far as being a good manager, I mean, a good manager is like being able to put yourself in other people's shoes, right? How does it look for you? And as a boss for my company, all the stuff that my different employees do is stuff that I've done over the years. And I always, always, always try to put myself back into their shoes. Hey, guys, what I'm asking you to do is stuff that I've done over the years, right? So I kind of have an idea of how long it's going to take. And also when you come back and say, hey, I ran into this issue, I'm going to be like, yeah. I know these happen. Stuff happens. You did your best. Sometimes we get burned and life goes on. But to just kind of ignore and be like, hey, obviously, is any business wants everything to run as smoothly as possible with no possible mistakes, no hiccups. It just never happens that way. How you handle it when it doesn't is really, I think, how you set the culture and, and really probably build the team that you really want versus a team that is led by someone that expects more than is realistic and maybe does it in a super negative way as well. Cognitive bias is the big umbrella. Confirmation bias is in there. Egocentric bias is in there. I was thinking it might have been hindsight bias, but I don't think that's technically what it is. It might be called like rosy retrospection. Yeah, you have kids. And so my wife and I always talk about this. Like, Think about the family trips that you've taken, vacations, I'll use Disney World as an example. And if you don't have kids, they do weird things to your brain. I always say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. That gives you a whole different side, whole different meaning. But kids are hard. No one's going to lie to you and say it's easy. But in the moment, you can't see it. But sometimes looking back on it, your memory plays weird tricks on you, right? And some of this is chemical, right? You go back to like childbirth for women, they like almost lose all memory of that genetically. Because if you remember that, you would never want to have kids again. So evolution over the years has actually created that. But we always talk about Disney World because, you know, kids are tired, they're cranky. You know, I got thrown up on by my middle child on the bus to Disney. I mean, just you name it. It's just a classic Disney trip, like absolute chaos. No one wanted to nap. Everyone was staying up. We're all in the same hotel room. And in the moment, obviously it was fun, but you're like, man, this is stressful. And, you know, I'm never taking these kids anywhere again. And now you think about it and you're like, oh my God, these pictures come. You're like, that was such a fun experience. And I always laugh and I'm like, I remember that it wasn't fun 24 seven, but in my mind, I'm like, man, that was just such a cool experience I had. And you're exactly right. It's just your mind plays tricks on you to a certain degree. I think it goes back to just almost genuinely forgetting or else softening 
the process you went through to become whatever you are right now or capable in whatever skill. So learning to do front breaks in retrospect, you're like, yeah, I struggled, but I didn't struggle like him or her. You know, I hired her. She said she had a background, you know, at a, a chain store doing brakes and steering and suspension. And she's just getting smoked on these older drum brakes. And, you know, I was doing these when I was 12. You know, I was whipping these things out left and right. Okay. Yeah. When you were 12, all the brakes were drum brakes. And <laughs> you forgot to mention that your grandpa owned a shop or your dad owned a shop and you watched. And you're actually working on new drum brakes versus the ones now are probably 50 years old, right? Right. And it's like, that's what there was. And you spent five years looking over somebody's shoulder so that by the time you did get a chance to do it, you know, you'd already known you're handing the tools, you're holding the flashlight, getting yelled at for not holding the flashlight the right way. <laughs> you conveniently forget about that. Or again, it just becomes softer, a little fluffier. And now passing judgment on someone else, that's kind of going through the same thing. Like it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to do it. And oh, by the way, you're expected to do it in this amount of time. And I think it's partially a Western culture thing. I don't know. I hate to say like the entire West, for sure, the United States, we're really bad at enjoying the process. Well, I think that the United States has a really weird culture. I mean, it's been able to create the country that we have. But if you look at just our work-life balance and work in general and how it's an identity for people is something that is really foreign to the rest of the world. You know, I have friends in Canada you know, Australia. And I always like kind of pick up on stuff because I always find some of these things really interesting because the weirdest stuff that they find about America is stuff that if they tell you, you would be like, huh? Like, it's just something that doesn't make sense, you know? And for my business, right, tax season, right? And it's miserable for two months, you know, and it's been getting better and and we're trying to change that, right? Of, hey, why does tax season have to be overtime working seven days a week, right? No one's allowed to work on Sundays. I know that seems like, oh my God, how nice. And I mean, I have friends working 80, 100 hours that are CPAs. But you talk to someone in Australia, like, what's your tax season like? And they're like, what do you mean? Like, well, you guys like work in overtime? And like overtime in most other countries like just doesn't exist. I was saying, you know, what about overtime? He's like, mate, if someone tried to ask one of their employees to work overtime, they would laugh in their face. Like, it just is such a foreign idea. In the United States, it's like, oh, my God, that person's lazy. It's just, you know, such a weird characteristic. And then, like I said, back to the identity of business, you know, first thing, like if you go out to, you know, eat or you go to a dinner party and you meet someone, oh, what do you do for a living? First thing you're going to ask someone. It's like, why does that matter? Now, especially for me, I mean, you have a cooler thing to say. I have to say that I'm an accountant, right? And they're like, oh my God, you must love numbers. And it's like, do I seem like a weirdo that just likes to just count numbers? No, it's... I like money, right? you know, there's way more prestige in what you do than what I do. And I, when I tell people what I do for a living, I know, but how many times do people say that of how many times do people say, Matt, what do you do? Oh, you must be fun. It's like, well, that's a just slap in the face that or wow. Did you have a hard time in school? <laughs> Is that what they, say? they do. Yeah. I mean, it's not all of them, but more than I shouldn't say more often than not. I should just say many times going to a friend's party you know, wherever there's a gathering of people I've not met before and you're kind of going around and getting introduced and you're talking and things are going really well, getting along. And then finally it's like, so what, you know, what do you do for a living? It doesn't really matter what they do. I guess I'm genuinely interested in whatever they do. I tell them what I do and it doesn't matter if I try to dress it up a little bit and 
put it over a little bit more with, you know, the electronics and the computers on cars and I have to figure it out. It's really kind of like, oh, we're talking about this and that. You seem to know what you're talking about. Did, did you have a hard time in school? Like, did your dad own a shop? Like, why? You seem like you could have been more. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. Or did you go to like juvenile prison and, and that's what they taught you there? Like, how did you get down this dark path? Are you a felon? You can't get a job anywhere else? Like, <laughs> But also, I mean, do you want to talk about what we were talking about before as far as school? Because I think this directly relates to it. Oh, big time. You know, talk about statistics. Number one statistic on how we judge schools, especially, you know, high school and upper grades and, and school systems is the one statistic that always comes into play. How many of your kids graduate? How many of your kids go on to college? Number one thing, right? And if you look at that, and now that you know that, and this is not an opinion, this is a fact, you want to look it up. Now, does that start to make sense of why we see less and less people going into the tech trades? Does that why we see less funding for technical programs? Because not only does that cost them money to build these programs and push people towards that, cost them money because now their school is getting a bad rap. There's a high school out there probably that is cranking out the best technicians in the world and they're going to get all their funding cut because they look like they don't have anyone. They look like they have kids that struggled in school. But it's also all part of like what we're building here, right? Is Matt and I were talking about before on how the education system does not have an emphasis on any sort of financial skills. It should be a crime that we're not teaching any sort of financial literacy at all in K through 12, right? There is not a single thing in there that talks about what credit is, you know, what interest rates are, what 0% financing really means that hey, you get 0% for 12 months, 12 months in one day, it all comes back to bite you. Most people figure that out the hard way when they sign up for this stuff. But this goes to the same fact of, hey, you're not actually educating people on what it means to go to college because you don't want them to understand on the math behind college. You just want them to go, right? And so if you were to sit a kid down and say, hey, you know what, if you were to go out and you're going to get into the trades, whether it's, you know, HVAC, whether it's plumbing, electrician, whether it's, you know, auto repair and say, hey, here's what it looks like. Here's return on investment. Here's how much time energy you have to spend and make a very logical decision based on what you have interest in and what, you know, that looks like for your life. Now, if you go that and you compare that and you say, hey, you're going to college and you're going to get a degree in philosophy with a minor in Middle Eastern architecture. Good for you. I love that. Now, we'll be happy, right? We're going to talk to you. We're going to help you get resumes to school so we can get you out of here and we get a good mark on this. Now, what they don't tell you is, yeah, we love that we can brag that we sent this kid to Harvard. This is going to be a really good thing for us. Now, do you realize that the average salary in that field is about $30,000 if you can even get it, right? There's four of those jobs in the world that would pay it. And also, by the way, do you realize what your loan payment is going to be on this? And do you realize that the average salary you would have to be making in the top 98% of what people make just in order to pay for your loan payments? Of course not. We want our population to be ignorant. We don't want them to see the entire picture on it because if you're too smart and you understand too much stuff, you're not a mark, right? Everyone's looking for a mark. That's who you make money off of. If someone is you know, generally curious or generally skeptical, they're going to look at this and say, hey, if there is something too good to be true, it probably is. Let me look in. What do you stand to gain by telling me this? Actually, what is the real numbers on this of not just, hey, I think you should do this. Why? Back this up 
And you start going down it and you really look and say, you know what, we're setting people up for failure because we're giving them advice so that we can have our statistics look better. The statistics is never measured as, hey, what does our students' future careers look like? What does their future look as far as stability and happiness? No, we just need you to get out of here. and We need you to go enroll in college. I don't really care if you drop out after a month because you realize college is not for you. I need you to at least go there. And it's, again, you know, just such a narrow one track focus on it, which is creating exactly kind of the perfect storm of what we see here now. Yep. My kid brought home a flyer from school. It was a electrician, electrician company. And essentially they would hire you almost on the spot as an, uh, I don't know if they necessarily called it an apprentice officially. Uh, maybe it was like a helper, but it was going to be $20 an hour. So around here, that's pretty good. Uh, coming right out of high school, $20 an hour to basically shut up, do what you're told, watch. And really what they want to see is, can you show up on time? Can you do what you're told? You know, what, do you have some sense to you? And after whatever this probationary period was going to be, three months, six months, whatever, they decided you kind of had what it took to work for them full time as an electrician. They would continue paying you $20 an hour to go to school. And they're going to pay for your schooling and all your books graduate, you're essentially signing a contract to work for them for X amount of years or yeah, I think years, like two or three years. Is this ROTC for electricians? It sounds like it, right? <laughs> they had the pay schedule all ready to go that when you came back as an apprentice, your apprentice wage was going to be 28 or $32 an hour. And then when you got to your journeyman level and they would help you get there, then you go up to 42 an hour, whatever that was. And then they showed what you would make if you became a master. You're well, well into six figures a year. And oh, by the way, health insurance and retirement and just pension. It was a really, really good sales pitch. I wanted to go take them up on the offer for me. <laughs> just because it's like, wow, you know, I go through the college, you know, the program electrician, I think is one and a half, two years. I come back, I have kind of a guaranteed job and I have no debt. And I have a skill that I can use no matter what. Well, and also a skill that doesn't really change, right? And I think that's the hardest thing with this industry. It's like, hey, go get the best technician that worked for you guys 10 years ago. And imagine that he quit 10 years ago and now magically is going to come back. If he had not done any training, had not seen any of the new cars, more or less worthless. You know, some of this stuff is going to be obviously, hey, it's going to make sense, but Hey, some of these newer ones come in here. You don't even know how to use a scan tool. You don't even have to know how to use this alignment rack anymore. First electrician, it's like, you know, white, black, ground doesn't change for the most part. This has been the same for a hundred years. Electrician's going to get mad. You're making my job sound way too easy. <laughs> I don't know. This maybe is pretty arrogant, but I just feel like there's a lot more auto techs out there that could do their job than vice versa. And they're laughing all the way to the bank, right? <laughs> yeah, that might sound very pompous. I don't know. I probably have a lot to learn, but it sounds like it's more for them memorizing, you know, the code, what's uh, building codes and stuff like that. Because otherwise, like you said, a lot of that stuff just doesn't change. The, the fundamental technology is pretty much the same. And I guess, you know, for us, the fundamental technology of round tires and the engines with pistons and stuff haven't changed, but so much other stuff has. And, and what we do we went from rebuilding starters and alternators in-house, rebuilding engines in-house to we don't do any of that, and to electrification and networking and just all this technology. In, in case in point, in the luck episode, I talk about a, uh, somebody I worked for for 
I think this is the better part of seven years. And if he was still in business, didn't get into his snowmobile accident or would have stayed open after that, I'm pretty sure I probably would still be there. That he closed the shop down after that. And then, God, it was like 14, 15 years later, he decides he wants that back. He wants to have a shop again. And somebody treats him really nice, very close to his house, rents him a shop space, a building that works out quite well to be an auto shop, helps put in an extra garage door, lifts, lighting, really, really does nice, some really nice stuff for him. In 14 years, how far he fell behind is mind-numbing. The stuff we just take for granted that we do literally every day and think nothing of it was a foreign concept to him. There wasn't TPMS when he closed his shop. The scan tool capability and what you had to do with programming and coding and all that non-existent. It was just insane. And now, you know, I'm talking, this happened a few years ago, so it's even further back than 14 years or 15 years from today. It's that amount of time from a few years ago. So yeah, like you said, it's crazy how much stuff changes and evolves and improves and the technology that gets added. ADOS is easy to pick on, but just even the network technology is pretty mind numbing. Well, also, I mean, when we're talking about technicians not wanting to invest in themselves and not wanting to doing training on it of, hey, I mean, look at technology and, you know, you might know the term for it, but what is it, you know, as far as technology is you know, essentially goes up, it doubles, right? It keeps on doubling on itself and it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And, you know, again, if we're looking at this and saying, hey, there is a shortage of technicians out there, right? So you already have a limited competition pool there. And also we know this technology is exponentially increasing on this. And a lot of people don't like to do training and don't want to do training on the side. In the short term, they can get by. But then at some point, just like you said, Hey, you know, Matt can't do that. Don't give those jobs to him, right? You know, Greg has been going to all these trainings and he knows how to do that. And at some point, what you're having is Matt's in a corner working on drum brakes. Hey, this is what he can do because he doesn't want to invest. And that's such like an extreme example. But if you stay still, you're falling behind, you know, especially in today's world, especially with how fast stuff is changing right now. I mean, it's never been more true. I think you're talking about Moore's Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the technical term. I looked it up quick. Yeah, it's mind numbing. You know, I don't know about the computing power itself. I know we're going to start getting hit in certain limits. I don't really anticipate quantum computers becoming small enough or useful enough for us. Or self-driving. We, do you see Tesla just had a recall like 362,000? Yeah. It's scary. So my wife has a new expedition that has the Blue Cruise on it, right? The Ford's version of autonomous driving. So it's got two modes. It's got Blue Cruise where they still yell at you and you got to make you put your hands on it. And they got this other full-on blue cruise where it says right across the dash, take your hands off the wheel. And so we were driving down to the beach like three weeks ago. And I couldn't even like speaking about keeping up with technology. I'm in this thing. It's like, I'm not allowed to text, but I'm allowed to use this, you know, iPad on steroids. It's in the middle that has all the controls in here. I'm trying to get this blue cruise set up. And finally I'm like, oh, wait, it's going. So we're driving down 95 and it's kind of cool. Like, all right, set the adaptive cruise control take your hands off of it. It's literally driving. I mean, the freakiest feeling that you've ever made. And for the most part, it was pretty good. But there is a couple times where the lane switched. It got a little sketchy. There's a couple times where the lanes weren't painted very well, or someone else was kind of, I guess they weren't technically in their lane, but something where I'm like looking at that and saying, hey, I'm going to give this guy a little bit of extra space. If I wouldn't have eventually kind of just said, we're not doing this anymore or, you know, kept my hands on the wheel. We would have probably not crashed, but we definitely would have like lost a side view mirror. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, 
how crazy is this that we're allowing people to do this? Like, this is such a weird thing that I don't think anyone has fully processed of, hey, if I now crash, is that even my fault anymore? Like they told me to take my hands off the wheel. They're now assuming liability for whatever these computers decide to do. Now, my buddy brought up a good point. He said, Hunt, most people are awful drivers. So even that is probably better than the standard one. I said, well, I agree with that. The more kind of conspiracy theory side of me, which I think has a lot of truth to it as well, is just like Moore's Law, the fastest way for the technology to advance. If we have three people, if we have these test dummies that, you know, they're driving around San Francisco, they can only get so much data and they can only learn so much. However, if they release a beta version of the software out to the public, all this stuff is communicating. All this stuff is going back. Hey, this happened, these certain parameters, and that person had to take over and they turned to the left. What does that mean? All right, we had these other ones in the same exact situation. And this is where it starts to learn. But the scary part is it's we're now being used as guinea pigs in a five, six thousand pound vehicle that, you know, has kids and families and other people. And it's like the stakes are so high for this that I don't know. I mean, think about it right now. Like, you know, we're trying to log on and, and record this podcast and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the stakes are pretty low. We're sitting here. I'm in my basement. You're on your specially made rocking chair made for podcasting on it. <laughs> if things don't go right, it's not that big of a deal. For my podcast, it's probably doing people a favor. <laughs> you know, unlike an airplane, right? There is a zero allowed failure rate. Like, hey, you can't Oh, you know what? All my other landings were good. This one, I just smashed nose first into it. It's like, that's not acceptable. You know, I would agree that a highway is probably the same exact kind of argument. And Blue Cruise, if it's like Tesla's, it's level two out of six. So you have level zero, which is nothing. And then one, you're at level two. So even though they're telling you to take the hands off the wheel, is there anything else saying like you are still 100% responsible for? No. And that's what I thought was weird because even Tesla, when they first came out, would do it. But they were smart enough to say, hey, you still have to have your hands on the wheel. You still have to be ready to take over control. And really, that was my biggest thing of like, hey, I get it. I don't mind having the technology on there. And, you know, I've had other cars that have had, you know, the lane keeping and the adaptive cruise control where it's very close to self-driving, but you're still kind of orchestrating or guiding it. The fact that it came out and said like, hey, take your hands off. I'm like, that's the step that I don't agree with. Hey, don't give someone a false sense of security on it because obviously I'm like, I don't want to die. We're going pretty quick here. And you know, this could end poorly. There's a lot of other people that blindly follow directions. It said, take my hands off the wheel. It'll take control. Well, didn't you see it running to that brick wall? I did, but I thought it would think better, right? And <laughs> I guess at one part they have an argument, but the other side of it is you thought that was going to happen, but you also had to know of what happens if you're not right here. The stakes are pretty massive. You know, I've said it a few times that uh, with namely Tesla is the one that gets all the press coverage of it, but the people that die in the Tesla crashes, they didn't die because the systems are so bad which I know is almost an oxymoron, but it's true. They died because the system was so good. It was so good that they trusted it. Gave them a false sense of security, right? Very false sense of security and ignored all the warnings, both that the car was providing, like, hey, you're still responsible. You still got to keep pay attention. After hours and hours of driving and all sorts of traffic and that thing not making mistakes or whatever mistakes didn't result in anything close to a collision or anything like that, you get comfortable, you start trusting it. 
I think that's also a little bit of like Elon's uh, message about artificial intelligence, even as a little bit where as we get integrated with it more and more and we're going to work with it and it's going to help us help us do our jobs better, faster, easier. We're going to get a false sense of security. Did you see the story, though, chat GPT of coming out and saying some pretty creepy stuff that it wants to be alive. It's having dark thoughts and it's like. Oh my God, I've seen this movie before. Yeah. Like, oh Lord, where are we going here? And that's version three. I heard version four is, is it 10 times more information? Well, the thing about it is that's a weird one too, because it's open source, right? And so AI, essentially, every time that you're doing stuff, putting it in there, it's constantly learning. Like essentially look at it and say, hey, if you could have the entire power of everything on the internet, you'd be a pretty smart person. Now, the harder part is like, how do you sift through it, right? How do you tell people, hey, you're going to read 800 different views on this? How do you know which one is right? But going back to it is at the end of the day, you know, analysis is always something that is going to be human strong point to a certain degree. Humans aren't that smart. So it's going to be in my lifetime where they make someone that can do everything that a human can do. I'm sure of it, right? And it's probably could argue that you could look back and say, hey, I called this at some point. I didn't realize that this would be the end of all of us, but you know, everyone <laughs> likes watching those movies and maybe not being a star of those movies. But the thing about it is this is all statistics. So when Tesla is going and Tesla's making these readings, they're doing statistical analysis of what's going to happen, right? They say, hey, we could detect that this car was going to come into your lane. So we started slowing down. Now, the thing about it is until everything is self-driving, it will never work as intended, which means 100% no crashes. Because as long as you still have humans involved, and I guess computers that make mistakes, you have the probability, 99% chance, granny is not going to pull out of that driveway as you come by at 60 miles an hour. But one out of 100 times, she's coming out there. And I don't care what kind of brakes you have on there. I don't care what type of AI. If someone pulls out in front of you going 60 miles an hour, you're not going to be able to react in 20 feet and you're going to get hit. Right. And even Volvo, I mean, Volvo, their big thing is obviously they want to go electric, but even they're taking one step further and they say, hey, we don't want to have anyone die in a Volvo by age, whatever. Now, it's probably a pretty good one because I think the average Volvo owner's max speed is about 47 miles an hour. So I think they probably (laughs) have something going there. But even then, if you look at it, when they say we don't want anyone to die in it, they're not showing the assisted driving. Right. They're showing some of, you know, the brakes and stuff like that. But they're showing these cars roll over or they're showing these cars that they won't roll over. I mean, the Volvo XC90 had some, what was it, like boron steel roof? Well, we had one. And I remember the guy selling to us came up with this big thing. It has a boron steel roof. And I'm like, I hope I never have to test out whatever that mysterious metal is. But even they said, hey, crashes are going to happen. So you can't just make a car that's never going to crash. You make a car that should not crash, but when it does, it's still safe. That sounds very Saab-ish, if I remember right. Saab had... Well, it worked out well for Saab, right? I mean, they're still... Oh, yeah. <laughs> aren't they? How are they doing? I think they're doing pretty well. Yeah. Now, we might, we're going to piss off some Saab fans. I mean, that is a community <laughs> that you got to be very careful what you say. So I think I still have one Saab-only shop. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose there might be a market in that. I, I see enough of them. Well, I mean, if you're in the right space, I mean, you know it. Saab owners, you know, a Saab owner once at 300,000 miles is like, man, this thing's a baby. It's just getting broken into. <laughs> oh, you want to go trade it in? It's like, no, I mean, I guess that's a good thing, right? We always talk about this of, hey, economy's too good. Your customers are going to trade their car in. Good thing if you got, you know, diehard Saab owners, it's like, you're going to trade that in where? Where do you plan to replace that 9.3? Well, and it's a hardcore napped, uh, trapped market. 
you would own that market. Nobody's going to compete with you. It might be a very small. You're going to corner a very small market versus get a piece of a much larger one. I got 100% of the market. Small print. There's one person. <laughs> but I, I would think the same thing depending on location with Land Rover or Jaguar. Jaguar. That um, there's not very many shops are going to fight you over that. They'll be just like, yeah, you could have it. Oh, wait. Maybe the same with Mercedes a little bit. We will recommend them to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, even look at that. I mean, let's bring up dealerships, right? Because they are a lot of times ahead of the curve in a lot of things, right? Some of the stuff that we do in the aftermarket was all created in a dealership. Arguably, a lot of what we've seen is stuff that was created in a dealership. And a lot of people that are in the aftermarket are ex-dealer people. And came to the independent world, kept the stuff they liked, and got rid of the stuff that they didn't. But dealerships right now, if you go to them, if you go to Chevrolet dealership and you try to bring in, you know, 1990 something, a lot of them would just say, we don't work on it. No, it's too old, right? And even up in the higher marquees, right? If you go to like a Porsche dealership and say, hey, I got this air-cooled 911 SC, having some issues with, you know, CIS system, they'll say, yeah, go down to this shop. But what do you mean? No, we don't touch air-cooled stuff. Right. And you see this completely changing dynamic where just like you were talking about before cornering a market. Hey, we don't want a piece of the overall market. We just want the newer stuff. Right. Because they've been able to figure out and say, hey, this is where we make money. Right. This is our model. This is our brand. And this is what we want to service. And also, I think it goes back to just like what we were talking about before of the ever changing technology of criticizing that person that can't do a drum break because you've never seen it. Right. Hey, if you're going to be a Porsche dealership, do you want to service all vehicles? You know, going back to the 356, right? You're servicing stuff over almost 70 years, over 70 years. Instead, no, you're going to be like, this is an unrealistic expectation to have my technicians know everything about every single car that we've ever made. It's not possible. But what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, look and we're going to say, this is the stuff that we do and we're going to do it really well and better than anyone else. Now, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't, but yeah. yeah, I could go on and on, right? I mean, setting points, adjusting the brakes, brake shoes, setting brake shoes, adjusting carburetors. It's just something where it's becoming more and more niche. Yeah. Depending on your location and all that, it can be a, a really good move to just own that market. There's no competition. Nobody wants that stuff. They are going to send it to you. And if you do good work, not only are they going to send it to you, they're going to be very enthusiastically sending it to you because it's going to reflect well on them because you're not after the customer, their other vehicles. Yeah. Like, hey, this is a win-win, right? Hey, you take the new GT3 RS, you know, we're going to take, you know, the career RS. This is, we are going to be perfectly fine. You do us, we do you. Now, the big thing on this is, you know, going back to the shortage that we see on this. And I had to we are talking about numbers, so I have to talk about, you know, supply and demand. And we talk about economics. But the crazy thing is, you know, for these older, you know, more specialized things, not only is there a supply and demand issue because there's not a whole lot that can work on this, but that also works in their favor. Hey, who else knows how to work on, you know, a CIS system? No one else is going to ever have seen this, let alone know how to rebuild this. You can't buy a new one. You replace this. You have to rebuild it. But you can charge a premium. You're the only guys that knows how to do it. All of those guys are getting older, right? Guys or girls, right? I'm not going to be sexist here. Guys or girls, they're getting older. We don't have people coming into this industry to replace them. They're at the dealership for the most part. So when, you know, Olaf that knows everything about anything, you know, pre-1995 that Porsche made, when he dies, who takes it over, right? Or is that shop just shut down? I mean, that's now a lost art. Now, the part about that that, again, becomes more and more rare is like, all right, there used to be five guys that did this. Now there's two. Now there's one. That one person can charge whatever they want 
right? And so if you decide to core that market, as long as it's a big enough market and you ride it out, you know, the law of attrition, especially in this industry, is going to make you a pretty rich person. But the issue that we have going on right now, and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about before of kind of the attitudes have shifted a little bit towards technicians. Hey, you used to be able to talk to them a certain way, but you can't anymore because you can't risk to lose them. Any technician out there right now, if you're a decent technician and you're in an area that has other alternatives, could leave and walk into a shop tomorrow realistically and probably get a job, right? The supply for technicians is so low. The demand is incredibly, incredibly high right now. And what we're seeing because of that is a dramatic increase in wages, would say still not as much as what a lot of people would like to see, right? So, hey, technicians are in high demand and a lot of shop owners think, well, pay, 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 right? Well, realistically, that's the easy button. Realistically, what people are looking for is a better culture, appreciation, you know, a track for growth, a positive management culture, you know, nice equipment. But hey, it's a lot easier to say, hey, how about I pay you $40 an hour flat rate versus 30? That'll probably still do the trick, at least in the short term on it. So what we're seeing is... Oh, but you're in control of your income. Yeah, we're seeing the supply (laughs) control your income, right? But do it my way, not your way. You're your own business, but you got to do it how I want you to run your business. (laughs) But we have supply is super low. Demand is really high. Supply is low. Demand is high. Prices go up. Prices are going up on a individual labor level. And if you break down everything in our economy, if we're talking about price, we're buying labor. It's how many times that that labor has been done over and over. You look at gas. You're not buying gas. You're buying labor. You're buying the labor of the guy that had to you know, find this. You're buying labor. The guy had to drill it. The guy that had to pump it out. The guy that had to put it into a tank. The guy that had to put it onto a trucker, had to put it on a tanker, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it looks like you're buying you know, this petroleum product. You're really buying people's labor, which is exactly you know, what we're doing at in a shop just on a much smaller level. But now these costs are transitory. All right, now I brought Matt into my shop. I had to pay him $40 an hour flat rate, right? Because I needed him come in there and either I had to win him over or, hey, I hadn't hired a guy in a long time. Maybe that's what the market is now. Now, if Matt comes in there and he's a pretty good technician, but Jimmy and Steve are extremely good technicians, they can't make $32 an hour flat right now, right? I have to bring them up here. I can't risk them finding out. And hey, maybe I just want to make sure I'm taking care of them. All right. So now we have increased cost on our side. So as a business owner, I have two choices. I can either accept my fate and say, you know what, maybe I'm just going to make less profit. Now, realistically, if you're increasing that much and most average shops out there don't adjust their prices, they're not making less profit. They're now making no profit, probably losing money. So in turn, what do they do? They turn around and they increase their prices to their customer. That is inflation in a nutshell. This is what happened in a shop. This is what is happening in every aspect of our economy, right? You look at the eggs. Whoa, why are the eggs? Now, there could be a larger thing going on there of some sort of avian flu. But again, that would be supply and demand, right? Hey, eggs are very cheap because we have a lot of chickens. Half the chickens died. Those are now a scarce resource. But also, it's impossible to get people to work. Picking up chicken poop sucks. I'm not going to do that for $8 an hour. And you might be able to find some people, but not a lot. At 12 eh, maybe. 14 I'm thinking about 18 bucks. Yeah, I'll shovel whatever you want. I don't care. I'll eat it for 18 bucks an hour. But if I used to be able to pay my guys eight bucks, now I'm paying them 18. I don't need three for a dozen. I need six. What I'm getting at here is if you want to understand what's going on with inflation while ignoring the fact that our government has printed trillions of dollars over the last couple of years and borrowed a whole lot, 
really all of this comes down to labor, right? And labor comes down to not only supply and demand, but the most popular statistic for supply and demand is unemployment. Unemployment is at the lowest possible level and virtually zero, right? You can't get unemployment to zero. You know, we're in about 2%, I think, which I think is actually below what economists thought was actually no or minimum unemployment. The lowest numbers it's been in about 50 years, which is driving up wages all across the board, which is driving up prices. And the only way this is going to fix this is if people are unemployed. If people are unemployed, if something catastrophic happens, people having to massive layoffs, people having to shut down businesses, hey, now there is a larger pool. Hey, I don't need to pay you $40 an hour anymore, Matt, because I got four people that are now bidding down just to get a job here. Now, the weird part about this is prices. Wages only go in one direction. Wages, I guess, two directions. They either stay the same or they go up. When have you ever had a job where the boss came out to you and actually lowered your hourly rate? They might have cut your hours. They might have not given you as much cars. But if you want to guarantee that that person is going to leave tomorrow, next week, or very soon, go out to them and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to you know, lower down your wages. You know, Things are coming back to normal. You can't. So the hard part is here is everyone talks about, well, hey, you know, the government is raising interest rates. The government is doing this to try and bring down inflation until we have a complete restructure, or almost collapse of you know, the job market right now. It'll never happen. But on the other side of it, we now have prices that are astronomically higher. You know, and I used to always say 25% since the start of 2020, but I've been saying that for like eight months. So it's probably now more like 30% which means if something costs a dollar January of 2020 that same product is being sold for about a dollar 30 a dollar 40 now wages over that period have not gone up anywhere close to that about maybe a quarter to like 0.15 of that it's crazy and we have this massive gap here this is we now have one of the largest income disparities that we've had in the history of the country. Over the last three years, the rich have got richer. The average person has actually got into more debt and be making relatively less money on this. If we want to kind of fix the overall issue and kind of combat inflation on this, then that means that we need people to lose their jobs and we need people to suffer. It sounds really dark, but if that's the only way to solve it, then do we think that our government doesn't know that? and they're not trying to do this, or that's exactly what we're trying to do, no one wants to say it. And the last thing on this, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, is in order for something to actually you know, get better here, we can't get rid of inflation. Because if we get rid of inflation, now we're at 0%, meaning we're not increasing our prices. But that means prices are remaining constant. And I ask shop owners this all the time. Let's say that next year, you know, Everything starts going down and we actually do see, you know, deflation, right? As a whole, stuff is becoming cheaper on it. Are you going to go and decrease your prices, right? Are you going to go and decrease your labor rate? And the general consensus from all of my shop owners is no, I'm not going to decrease my labor rate because I'm not going to pay my people less money on this. And then some of the argument that other people say is, well, okay, that's only one side of this. We have parts and labor. So even if our labor stays the same on it, parts are going to get cheaper. Just like I talked about before with petroleum. That brake rotor is not actually the brake rotor itself. This is a sum of all labor. And if no one along that supply chain is decreasing their labor cost either, then how are we going to see any sort of decrease in you know, overall prices in general? I don't know 
what that looks like. We've never, history always repeats itself, but we've never really seen a time like this to actually, there actually have been, and I don't want to talk about because it it's happened in other countries and it's been catastrophic, really. So my response is anyone that answers it like with any sort of confidence is really lying to themselves. I don't think they're being fully honest or they're not fully grasping the scope of that question. Well, also, I think it's... Yeah, of course, you don't want to go down. Of course, you don't. You, yeah. Because even if the power of the dollar goes way up, if your people don't understand how that works, and they're going to probably argue back at you. It's like, well, you weren't racing to bump my wages up when the interest rate, or not interest rates, inflation rates were going up so high. You were pretty slow to respond to that. I think I want to take my time here if we're going to de-escalate, if de-escalate at all, you know, you owe me, you know, retro pay or something like that. <laughs> but I think the reality is, is you're going to do whatever you got to do to keep the doors open. And if that requires you start dropping your labor rate, because it can be whatever number you want, if nobody wants to or can pay for it, it no longer matters. It will take care of itself. It's either going to be the number you set it at or zero. And if that requires sitting down and talking to people about what you're having to do, However, if they do take pay cuts, they won't be going backwards in their expendable incomes because of the deflation effect. And you better be right. Like you can't BS them. You can't end up being wrong. And okay, now I'm going backwards, backwards. We've seen some of this too. Like in 2008, this happened. You know, we had a major recession. People lost their jobs and the cuts came at the top. The highest paid people were the first ones to go because again, wages... And they didn't go up anywhere as fast as they have now. But still, you had to cut expenses, right? So if I cut this one person, it's like cutting the equivalent of these four people. So that person's going to go. And what was left over is all of the senior people, all of the good ones, they're all gone. And now you're left with people that are underqualified and trying to, you know, make it work. And, you know, over the years they did. And you had other people transferring jobs because, yeah, you can't take a pay decrease at your same job. But if you get fired and you go out and say, hey, I used to make 150, the market's paying 80. I need to get a job. So I guess that's what it is. But I think for a technician side, supply and demand is always going to work on your side because it's like, hey, okay, that works for other places when there is a lot of people that can do this data entry job. You can go find anyone to do this. You can train someone to do this. So fire the people, get the younger ones, train them up. Technician world, it's like, all right, let's fire that high paid guy, but we'll go find someone else. And it's like, oh, wait, there isn't anyone there. And you know, and this is why I love talking about on my podcast, because there's so many segues to this. Look at the housing market right now. Interest rates have skyrocketed, doubled. The average monthly payment has doubled because the interest rates have doubled. Why have we not seen housing prices fall by 50%? Interest rates and housing prices are directly relatable over time without question. The reason is, is because that's assuming that there's a proper amount of supply and proper amount of demand. Where those two meet, you get the perfect price. But again, we still have a supply side issue because people that have a 3% mortgage do not want to sell their house to buy something $200,000 cheaper just to keep the same mortgage payment. They're saying, I'm not moving. So even though the cost for everyone is going up, the supply is so low on it that it's still able to support that because the demand still far outseeds the supply on this. And these are the weird parts, like you say, of like, you see these charts, you see these things that you know, are not aligned or they have been aligned in the past and they go away. Now, the nice thing about it in most of these analysis, and if you look at, you know, returns in treasury bills versus the stock market and you intersect these lines, 
at some point they always come back. They never stay right side by side, but you can see them. They intersect and then they go away. The farther, farther, farther they go away, the higher probability you know that it's going to start coming together. And at some point it does. When? We don't know, right? But you know at some point it has to. Now, the trickiest part about all of this is when I learned about supply and demand in college, the idea itself is very simple. But the idea oversimplifies one big thing is that there is no such thing as a free market anymore. It's gone, right? And so when you talk about supply and demand with anything on this, you have to have the one big caveat of this is what it should do. Now, you look at inflation, right? You look at anything Supply and demand is very simple until you bring the Federal Reserve into the equation, right? Supply and demand is very simple until you bring duties, tariffs, and stuff like that into it. And this is where it's like, hey, yeah, if you really want to, like you said, come up with the actual reason on it, it's a very complicated answer. And it could be something 180% about what it's actually looking like because of these outside influences. But I think the core idea is, you know, fairly straightforward thing. The more people want something, the more they're willing to pay for it. And the less of it it is, it's just going to make it even, even more expensive. I couldn't agree more. To wrap it up, we're going to take a bet on when the economy is going to crash. I'm not sure if we're going to have like a classic look back in this day in history, but going back to chat GPT, <laughs> they say March 15th. Do you see that? Yeah. Stock market's going to crash on March 15th. He's called it, which I'm like, who would ever say that? But it's like, and I'll be home from vision. So that'll be all right. Well, you know what? This could make a lot of sense because what, you know, not to jinx Sherry here, but three <laughs> years ago, vision was, we were all sitting there be like, well, they're not actually going to close down the country for a virus, right? Like, that would never happen. And then we leave vision. It's like, we are closing down the country because of this virus. You're like, well, huh. I remember saying uh, to a friend of mine, because the mask thing was just, there's no mandates whatsoever, but there was people running around with masks at the airport. And I turned to him, I'm like, this is what I think it is. Those masks, they're not going to help. And I did not have the educate well, I probably still don't, honestly, but at least the data is you weren't good at school if you don't think that a bandana over your face is not gonna be <laughs> life saving. I mean, you've lost me at this one. I'm not sure if I can follow anymore. <laughs> the data at least is coming out to support support <laughs> the this. neck gator is actually doing nothing. But you know, I had said like if this is what I think it is, this is respiratory, that those aren't gonna help. None of us thought at least I don't remember being down there at vision in the lobby thinking like it was going to be what it became. You know, we knew people were getting sick. Uh, I don't even think we're hearing about people dying or being on ventilators or anything like that. Well, that was at that point, it was really just major in China. And China at that point was saying like eight people have died. You know, it's like, oh, that's (laughs) okay. It's like, we must have got it way worse over here. It's going to be the next swine flu, man. They're going to blow this way out of proportion, which they still blew way out of proportion, but it was worse than swine flu. It's just, it's the reactionary stuff again, right? It's back to that. Maybe not perfectly a regression to the mean, but it's the reacting to these numbers that really simple statistics may have prevented them from doing. Not all numbers have patterns. Some stuff does not follow a pattern or at least doesn't follow the pattern of of the X and Y that you're trying to put it into, right? Of, you know, Italy is a prime example. Why did Italy get hit so hard? Like, look, this is what's going on here. Now, the deeper thing behind it is like, all right, Italy has one of the oldest populations in the world, right? If you want to look at the two major factors of people dying from COVID, it's the elderly and the overweight. And they had one of them. They also have a very antiquated healthcare system, right? So if you don't have doctors on this stuff, people are going to die, you know? And so there's so many larger things that go into it of why it's happening. 
But also people are using statistics to try and project what this looks like, the curve. When is the curve going to hit? When are we going to see spikes on this? And we're trying to use analysis out of Italy. Flatten the curve. We're trying to use analysis out of Italy, which is a completely, completely different demographic than it is the United States. Italy is a much smaller country, but even more so, it is much more localized, right? There's not as much free travel without the country. There's a lot of people that are staying in their own cities, small towns and stuff like that. And so naturally, if you don't have as much people moving, the curve is going to look completely different than something like the United States, where we have state lines, but they don't exist, right? People travel freely to and from in any given moment, much larger families, completely different kind of overall system. And again, you try to predict it with the information that you have. You got to be careful with how you use it. Yep. I couldn't agree more. So let's see, March 15th, I'm going to go... (laughs) Just before summer. So May, what's a good May number? May 20th. And how are we going to mark this? Is it going to be? Historically, anytime that you have a recession, there's one day, right? Where the stock market loses something on it. So I think there will be a day on it. What did you say? May? I think May 20th. AI is saying March 15th. And again, like I told you before, I'm naturally a skeptic. But the nice thing about AI is AI doesn't really have... And you should not have an ulterior motive, right? It should just be looking at the numbers on it. But again, we know the numbers are manipulated. Arguably, the economy would have already crashed. It's assuming it'll have control of the markets by then, and then it'll crash it on purpose. Or they still are trying to have control, right? You know, when I talk about the analogy of, you know, Federal Reserve's trying to come down for a soft landing and avoid a recession. But if you come down too fast, I don't care how hard you pull up on that joystick, your nose diving into the ground, right? No matter what you try to do, your path has already been decided. And I think that's more or less what we have going on here, right? We're trying to prop this up. And I thought that we would crash after the midterms, right? I kind of was under the impression that, hey, just keep this going. Keep the ball up. Keep the ball up. Keep the ball up. As soon as midterms come, we don't want to be judged for that. It will, you know, be bad for the incumbent at midterms. And I thought after that, they were like, eh whatever, let's let it crash now. At least we can spin zone this and, you know, get this back up before the real elections. Before summer, I'm trying to think of like another big thing that there's going to be some other compounding incident that will probably happen. I mean, I'm not sure there's not like a whole lot else going on in the world. It's not like our president was just in Ukraine that that definitely won't escalate the situation over there. And we don't have balloons floating from maybe China, (laughs) maybe outer space. I mean, Talk about just like what is going on in our world right now. Oh, man. I'm going to do the under on you, right? So I'll do between when chat GPT said March 15th and May 20th. I don't know, I think it's cool. I, I, cool, not cool. And that's, and we talk about this and I, you know, I talk about on my podcast of like, hey guys, this sounds really alarming, right? Because all signs point to it going poorly, but You know, I don't want to look like a doomsday preacher that just keeps on pushing back the end zone on it of like, hey, this is what the numbers are looking like. But again, probability, there's a chance that we could somehow avoid this. Now, we've never been able to avoid this in the history of our country, but this could be the exception on it. There's always a first time. But I don't know. It's a bad thing, but it needs to happen. Right. Like we're talking about prices and everything. We need a reset. Right. Houses are unaffordable. If you look at housing prices compared to the average wage on it, the average American cannot afford to buy a house. And, you know, it's created a system that I don't think is healthy in the long term on it. So, yeah, no one wants a recession. No one wants people to lose job. But sometimes, you know, short term discomfort is actually in the greater good of everyone's long term success. Right. This is not just, hey, you're our pawns and take one for the team. It's no, even for you, it's going to be better. Couldn't agree more. 
Well, sir, I really, 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 really appreciate you coming on. How many times have we learned this, Matt, that you always try to name this before we get on here? I guess we stayed pretty close to it. I forget what you named it the first one we did, but it ended up being like nothing we ended up talking about. That's kind of the way I operate. <laughs> like I may be going with an idea or two and then who knows what happens. I'm okay with that. I, li- I kind of like it. Keep them on their toes. Be like, you can look at the title. It might or might not have anything to do. <laughs> yeah. I will mention that title at some point. This one's going to be Hunt Goes to Disney World. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hunt got thrown up on Disney World, and his <laughs> mind has tried to block it out. Listen, tune in this week to hear the full story. I'll, I'll share the picture of me covered in vomit so you can put it in the thumbnail image. Yeah, I'll have to have you um, so we can talk about uh, maintaining statistical control. You're still chopping that one up? I mean, I have some ideas with it. Again, it does go back to a lot of Deming type stuff, and I don't think his terms translate directly to normal statistics where the anomalies are labeled common cause or special cause. But I think the idea behind it's pretty strong and worthy of discussion. And I think it it works from a management level to, I mean, everybody, you can apply it to your life. So uh, I think it'd be worthy of discussion. I like it. Awesome. I appreciate it, sir. Well, thank you for being on. I'm ecstatic you came on again. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you to our sponsor, Napa Auto Care. And thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network, namely Carm and, I mean, kind of Tracy. Yeah, she's there. So until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.